Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Eric Schiller. He's the Managing Director and Head of Developed Market Rates and Agency MBS as part of PGM Fixed Income. This conversation looks at mispricing and opportunities within fixed income relative value. We look at the causes of mispricing, the causes of mean reversion, how the market structure and market participants have changed over the years, the role of leverage in these strategies, the concerns around volatility and fat tail risks in relative value, We also look at how these strategies are correlated to broader equity market returns. And finally, we look at the barriers to entry that many asset managers face as they look at this particular strategy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So in terms of the first question that we should kick off with, you you look particularly at relative value in the fixed income markets. What, What specifically are you looking at when you talk about relative value in fixed income? Yes, Alex. So we are looking for dislocations in highly liquid non-credit instruments in the developed market interest rate spectrum. That would be classified as government bonds in highly developed countries like the United States, Japan, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, for instance. Um, also, the derivatives associated with those highly liquid markets being futures contracts, interest rate swaps, and the uh, options and volatility associated with those instruments as well being uh, options and swaptions. Also look at inflation-protected securities in those markets, or TIPS as they're commonly known. Uh, And then finally, in the agency mortgage space, so the government-backed mortgage securities in the United States, we also find a number of dislocations in uh, those securities as well. So looking for idiosyncratic pricing dislocations in those particular instruments that we think will mean revert over time as those dislocations converge and maintain market neutrality in the structure of the, of the uh, particular opportunities that we're arbitraging uh, to not take on any macro risks or have very little macro risks to really maintain the orientation of relative value, fundamental pricing dislocation in those particular liquid instruments around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, mispricing can mean a lot of things, right? You can have a very small mispricing of a couple of cents or some quite large differentials. You know, what determines mispricing or an opportunity for you as you as you think about a trade? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that mispricing ranges in the scope of it in a number of different ways. Uh, to your point, very small mispricings, highly convergence-oriented mispricings between things like bonds and futures contracts. That's a more commonly known uh, option uh, type of trade called a futures basis opportunity. And those tend to be you know, five, six, maybe as high as 10 cents of, of price disparity. Two things that we think are more potentially structurally uh, structural dislocations, like mispriced points on government bond yield curves. 
So there may be a segment of the yield curve on a fundamental model, mathematical model that we utilize to determine which parts of that yield curve may have structural inefficiencies. Those dislocations could be as high as one to two points uh, of price disparity. Very different orientation in terms of the, uh, obviously the degree of that dislocation, but also the time to convergence, the, the mean reversion expectation that you would have of that dislocation is another very important ingredient when we're assessing those different opportunities, which would be inherent in their volatility. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned about the difference between the futures and, and bond prices and that there's a an easy op- opportunity for arbitrage there. But as you start to move into the options and the swaptions uh, and you try and look at relative value maybe across different markets, is that another way that you look at it? Or is it always a direct uh, link? Yeah, the, the volatility vector very much comes into play because it is one of those systematic factors that uh, is embedded in our quantitative techniques to define whether or not securities versus a fair value curve are fundamentally mispriced or not. So not only are the observable market yields uh, used to, for instance, fit a fair value yield curve in each government bond market, but the volatility of those interest rates is also a very important ingredient because it defines convexity value. And when you're fitting and and fundamentally creating a fair value yield curve, you're absolutely going to need the volatility component to create that fair value structure. So when we consider volatility strategies, uh, we are utilizing those vectors in terms of the fundamental model input, but also residuals uh, of those different option prices that we may think are fundamentally mispriced in and of themselves. The other avenue where volatility comes in very importantly is in the in the mortgage space. So agency mortgages in the United States have a prepayment option. The borrowers of those uh, mortgages can determine if you know, they want a potentially reduced interest rate and that option is in the money if they can prepay that without uh, any any penalty, you know, it's very important to utilize volatility and structure and, and option adjusted spread framework to value that embedded option in those uh, in those underlying securities. So not only is the volatility uh, vector important from term structure fitting and yield curve fitting, but also very important in the framework of analysis for the mortgage opportunity set as well. Can you actually give a little bit more detail around an, an agency MBS, for example, what is the relative value trade that you're, you're, you're putting on there? Certainly. So in agency mortgages, in the United States, there's really two underlying cohorts. There's uh, Ginnie Mae, which actually is uh, fully backed by the US government in terms of its underwriting. So the investors in Ginnie Mae securities uh, are essentially buying, you know, four or five liquid tradable coupons that are sold into the marketplace as those mortgages get packaged uh, in their original underwriting and sold into the market uh, by the underlying agency once they're guaranteed. The other agencies are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that are combined now into a UMBS structure. And they also have roughly four or five liquid tradable coupons. So think about it as simplistically as you know, a homeowner in the United States buys a house, they finance that house at roughly an 80% loan to value. That mortgage 
if it's in a conforming structure, gets bought by, bought back by those agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or Ginnie Mae, and then sold into the marketplace with a reduced coupon, the agency retains some of that coupon uh, from the original mortgager to guarantee the mortgage against any kind of default. And as an investor, you can buy that mortgage. And there's a number of those different coupons that you can buy uh, in the marketplace today. It's anywhere between a 2% coupon to a, call it 5% coupon. And each of those coupons have very different characteristics. They're, they have different origination years. They have very different prepayment characteristics about whether or not the people that have, that are, um, that have taken out those mortgages are actually efficient in exercising that prepayment option if it's in the money. And the valuation framework that we have in terms of option-adjusted spread and some other uh, frameworks for analysis tell us which of those particular coupons in those particular cohorts may be fundamentally rich or cheap. So maybe the, call it the at the money coupon or the production coupon where all of the mortgages that are being originated locally are being sold into the market. That particular coupon may be fundamentally cheap because of the supply demand technical. So an example of a trade structure is we may be buying that at the money coupon, selling other uh, mortgage coupons around it, hedging the systematic risk associated uh, with that particular trade structure in terms of duration and yield curve and other systematic exposures, and uh, attempting to extract that fundamental cheapness of that one coupon that we think is being oversold. So a lot of technical underlying mathematical elements going into the analysis of that, but uh, may come down to a simple supply and demand story of, of what is actually being produced into the market has a positive supply technical that may be causing the dislocation. So what specifically would be driving that mispricing that you're seeing or that p- potential for relative value as a trade? Uh, just within mortgages or the broader scope? Well, it, within mortgages to start off with, and then let's let's m- take it out a little bit further as well. Yeah, I think quite a bit those supply demand technicals so not only in terms of the flow of the market, so where is their new issue supply? Where, where are the new mortgages being originated in terms of the coupon? Uh, that tends to be one factor. The aged inventory and aged mortgages, so as, as new mortgages are being created today, let's say that mortgage uh, has, has aged you know, one, two, three years through time, and as interest rates move around, the and let's hypothetically say that interest rates decline dramatically from here, that aged mortgage may be very much advantageous for the person that took it out three years ago because interest rates have declined to prepay that mortgage. They may say, okay, I can now go to my bank and I can prepay my 3.5% mortgage that I took out three years ago and reduce my payment down to a 2.5% mortgage. Well, that's very detrimental for the mortgage holder as an investor because the dollar price on that mortgage is probably trading somewhere around $104 or $105 price relative to par, that would be going to par the minute that that mortgagee pays it off. So it's very important for you to understand what that option is worth, what the characteristics of those aged mortgages are in terms of their prepayment sensitivity, and to really understand all the underlying dynamics. So now there's not just a supply demand technical, there's actually a mortgage efficiency. There is a 
uh, a better understanding of what are the loan to value ratios, what are the underlying home price uh, dynamics of the mortgages, a number of different qualitative factors that may cause that very mathematical prepayment option to be efficient or not. And that nuance, that, that fundamental uh, analysis is very important in terms of alpha extraction and positioning in relative value in those different mortgages, coupons, vintage years, and cohorts. Now, that, that's one example, obviously more of a technical one where you need to understand the underlying in much more detail. As you move to yes. mispricing within the government bond market, for example, or the corporate bond market, you know, what's driving those mispricings? Because I can see the mispricing in the MBS is a little, is a little bit more specificity that you need to understand the background of, of the actual participants that, that have taken out these loans. But in these other areas, what's driving those mispricings? Yeah, in my, you know, relatively long history in the government bond market and derivative market in particular, those dislocations are being caused by end user investors uh, that have liquidity preferences. Uh, there are market segmentations in these different markets that that cause these dislocations, preferred habitats. Uh, so something as simple as in the U.S. Treasury market. I'm sure everyone on uh, listening to the call today knows that the U.S. government is running a very large fiscal deficit at the moment as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and trying to stimulate the economy. And the U.S. government is issuing a tremendous amount of debt to finance those deficits. Those new bonds that we're issuing in various maturities across the curve, those very newest bonds, so the ones that they've generally just auctioned in the last month or so, actually on a fundamental basis are slightly rich relative to securities that um, are no longer the most newly issued bonds. And they call that new issue premium on the run premium for the most liquid, tradable, on the run treasury bonds uh, in the marketplace today. Mm -hmm. That liquidity premium uh, exists because investors tend to want a position in the you know, newest vintage, the most recently auctioned bond, and they want to hold that because it can be very transferable in, ter in terms of liquidity into cash, uh, either via electronic exchanges or calling a primary dealer for a price. Uh, so because of that inherent perception of liquidity, it commands a higher price than some securities that are older than it and have rolled down the yield curve. So that you know, that liquidity preference uh, is an extremely popular phenomenon has existed in the government bond market and in the U.S. Treasuries for a number of years and, you know, is an opportunity for relative value uh, trade structure to actually short those richer on their own security uh, bonds when that liquidity premium is overvalued. You know, the other example, and we touched on a little bit earlier, is in the difference between bonds and futures contracts. So futures contracts are uh, derivative uh, of bonds. They're very liquid. You know, it's some of the most liquid tradable interest rate uh, instruments in the world. They are margined with a very small amount of margin on uh, extremely stable exchanges. So they're extremely leverageable uh, in their underlying positioning. End user investors tend to utilize them very frequently for positioning in their portfolios uh, to replace dollar duration in different country exposures 
uh, with those futures contracts. So because of their liquidity, because of their implicit access to leverage, they also have tended to command a liquidity premium and a liquidity preference and have tended to be rich versus the similarly structured underlying bonds against them. So those rich futures can be shorted against going long similar securities and government bonds against them. And that bond futures basis dislocation is a result, again, of that liquidity premium. So these end user investor flows and their preferences for how they want to invest in these marketplaces, whether that's owning the liquid securities, whether that's owning the you know highly leverageable exchange cleared uh, securities instead of uh, securities that they would have to obtain leverage on through a repo transaction or something like that. Those all cause these uh, micro dislocations. Maybe further, where we where we also do identify dislocations are in the structural elements of investor preferences across the yield curve. Uh, so, for instance, in Japan, very long dated bonds in Japan are fundamentally rich versus securities that are shorter than them. There is a very large amount of life insurance demand for securities in Japan. So they demand dollar duration and they overpay generally for securities that are uh, in the 30 to 40 year segment versus securities, let's say, in the 20 year segment. So fundamental dislocation of bonds in 20 year maturity versus 30 and 40 year maturities in Japan is quite dislocated in its underlying fundamental price deviation of those securities and those maturity segments because of the underlying preferences of a very large swath of end users uh, in a particular region. And those dislocations and those preferences shift very much across these different countries and different regions, and we're able to pick them up uh, with these quantitative analytical approaches. So is it fair to say then there's quite a lot of work that you do in terms of understanding the market structure of each one of these areas and also the participants to to understand where these opportunities sit and then also being able to understand how these opportunities mean revert to actually close out? Absolutely. It, it is all a an analytical study of the fundamental quantitative analysis that identifies bond or derivative price dislocation. But once you've identified that dislocation, what are the mean reversion forces and what are the factors, the qualitative factors that would cause that fundamental price dislocation to converge over time? Now, time is the number one ingredient in all of this. Bonds that are fundamentally cheap tend not to stay fundamentally cheap. They tend to mean revert over time. Similarly, bonds that are fundamentally rich also tend to mean revert over time. Bond versus derivative price basis has a convergence force very frequently that causes a more stable known mean reversion. So it's the assessment of what is the fundamental mathematical identifiable uh, dislocation, and then what is the understanding of all the other forces, qualitative forces that will cause that dislocation to converge. And then how do you structure risk and how do you structure trade sizing around those different dislocations based on the level of the opportunity and the mean reversion over time? Let's let's talk a little bit more about mean reversion. Are you seeing mean reversion becoming quicker? Uh, if I think about 
the we, we hear a lot about AI and, and systematic traders and com- people coming into the market. There's a lot of participants looking to try and take advantage of these opportunities. Is there a faster mean reversion today than there was, say, five or 10 years ago? It's actually the exact opposite, particularly versus the pre-global uh, financial crisis period. While very much to your point, there is a prevalence of high-frequency trading firms that you know, do provide liquidity in these markets, and particularly the government bond markets and futures markets that were not as prominent as they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. They're really providing liquidity for very liquid uh, instruments within a you know, fraction of a second in the marketplace to try and extract very, very tiny, small amounts of, of price liquidity provision. The more opportune um, elements that we're looking for in some of these trade constructions that I've discussed, whether that's bond futures basis or bond yield curve dislocations, those more structural dislocations today actually are taking much longer to mean revert versus what we saw, you know, I would say in 2005, 2006, 2007, and really the pre-global financial crisis period. The perspective on that, I think, is, you know, prior to all of the regulatory impingement that was put on banks and financial institutions coming out of the financial crisis, particularly to limit leverage, to limit proprietary trading operations, All of those entities prior to the financial crisis were very much involved in return-seeking, arbitrage, dislocation trading in these different bond markets, very similar to what a relative value strategy would be employing today. So the the number of, of market participants doing these types of relative value trades, willing to hold those positions for uh, a much longer period of time than some of those market participants can today. I think the number of those participants were significantly more in the pre-financial crisis period than they are today. So there was implicitly a much larger pool of underlying capital exploiting these dislocations. I'll even go insofar as to say that anyone that had bank equity exposure, uh, whether it was a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley, uh, all of those entities, now Lehman, which is no longer with us as well, all of those entities were delivering very handsome returns to their shareholders, their equity holders, because of a lot of these relative value trading operations. And because of the regulatory overhang and regulatory umbrella that is over them now, they are they are not doing that as much. And that's left to the other remaining pool of capital that has committed capital in the hedge fund space that is left to arbitrage those dislocations and have to, having to have a little bit of a longer time horizon uh, in some of these positions because that pool of capital, from my perspective, is much smaller today than it has been historically. Let's talk a little bit more. You mentioned about margins and, and leverage. Yeah, I'm curious in terms of how much leverage needs to be play, you know, put into these trades to take advantage of some of these smaller opportunities. Do you, do you need to run quite high leverage? I would say leverage factor uh, has traditionally ranged anywhere between 10 to 30 turns of leverage. So certainly significant. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the scope of these opportunities on average that I would say uh, is extractable on an annualized basis, call it on average half a point of price deviation, 50 basis points price deviation. 
uh, in a number of these different both bond futures basis strategies, government bond relative value, agency mortgage relative value, and some of the strategies we've discussed. So call it 50 basis points of, of price deviation on a 10 leverage factor would generate 5% gross uh, return on equity to the underlying investor. Obviously, you could scale that up to 30 turns of leverage and get shoot for 15% kind of uh, return on equity. So dependent upon the underlying investor and their uh, risk tolerance uh, and, and how much return they're looking to, to generate in this type of strategy would determine the underlying leverage factor that would be employed. But I would say on average, think from a, from a you know, fund structure perspective, 10 to 30 turns uh, of leverage uh, would be, I think, traditionally applicable uh, to a viable strategy in the space. How do you then consider or think about the the risk of some fat tail style events with, with so much leverage um, in, in the portfolio? Risk modeling, drawdown analysis, uh, liquidity crises, I think all of those are extremely important in running a successful strategy. Uh, also, non-VAR-based risk assessment also is extremely important. I, I think it's very dangerous to utilize near-term volatility uh, when you're modeling some of these dislocations because very low levels of volatility typically translate to much smaller levels of dislocation and much bigger tail risks when those dislocations become larger. So, you know, you want to always be cognizant of, of what is the ultimate kind of stopping point for how dislocated and how fat-tailed can each of these relative value relationships become. Uh, so what is their not just normal variance, but what is their, you know, risk variance in terms of a drawdown scenario? And then what is the convergence force? And do you have a time convergence to hold that position to force it to come back in the line, which is generally going to drive a lot of strategies that are very considerate of fat-tailed risk towards the more convergence-oriented micro-RV dislocations like bond futures basis or something where there's a catalyst, a forced convergence for that dislocation to come back in the line. So we have seen, you know, over the decades, a couple of examples of that fat-tailed scenario. I think the deleveraging and position unwinds that came along with the long-term capital debacle back in 1998. I think the Lehman bankruptcy and the deleveraging that occurred during that period as well in 2008. And then very recently, the liquidity demands uh, that we saw in terms of position conversion to cash in government bonds in March of this year around COVID uh, and the liquidity crisis that that created was the most latest example uh, of liquidity stress and deleveraging uh, that caused uh, some fat tail observations in some of these uh, relative value orientations. So knowing and having a historical perspective on how dislocated those things can get in your risk management process, I think is extremely important. And then understanding what the mean reversion forces are and scaling risk appropriately during those periods is also extremely important uh, to a long run viable strategy. So just to, to touch on a little bit of what you mentioned there about liquidity uh, in, the, in the broader market, there is somewhat of a correlation between the equity 
market returns and the volatility you're seeing there and potentially has an impact to the relative value um, fixed income trading strategy that you're talking about. Is that is that fair to say? I would say in the tails very much. So if, if you know, when we see a 5% drawdown in the equity market tomorrow, I do not think is going to have a meaningful impact on this type of strategy. Uh, when you get when you move into a regime where you are seeing 20, 30, 40% rapid drawdowns in you know, broader equity markets that is either being precipitated on a global financial crisis like we had in 2008, uh, an Asian crisis like we had in 1998, or a coronavirus pandemic crisis like we just had in March. You know, those types of, of regimes generally see knock-on effects to some type of risk mitigation, liquidity demands, and the leveraging in developed market rate relative value. And those are generally where you see those correlations rise. So in those very significant tail risk regimes, very significant drawdowns uh, are those periods that, that we have seen both of those strategies, whether that's long equity, um, have a drawdown period, as well as uh, relative value dislocation commensurately. Mm-hmm. So maybe to wrap this question, this conversation up, one of the things I wanted to get to was, you know, this seems like a pretty you know, uh, repeatable strategy that can be done by a lot of people. You know, what may be holding back, you know, what's maybe holding back managers from moving into this strategy and looking to exploit it? As we talked about, there's a lot of other systematic traders out there. Are there barriers to entry? Is there enough opportunity out there or enough capacity in this strategy? Yeah, I think, you know, given the fruitful nature and, and relatively high sharp ratio historically of the strategy, I, I do think there is a, a larger desire for more participants to enter the market. Uh, but I do think there are significant barriers to entry. Uh, one is having an experienced track record running the strategy. Um, and I think there are very few institutions out there that, that have been able to do that successfully over the years. And then most importantly is the access to leverage. Uh, almost any institution uh, can get leverage access to an exchange uh, and be able to utilize futures contracts, which is why I think CTA types of strategies, to the extent they're successful and, and, are, and are able to mine out those opportunities, are have lower barriers to entry. But the minute you have to get a, a repo transaction, and you have to borrow money from whether that's an investment bank or a non-bank leverage provider. Those, those repo transactions and that repo borrowing, uh, which will define the amount of balance sheet or bond leverage that you can implement in this type of strategy, is much more difficult to obtain. You either have to have, uh, I think, a larger business presence uh, which is why I do think you know these strategies are being employed within larger multi-platforms, or you have to have you know a broader business revenue stream to justify the allocation of that balance sheet repo and and those that cash lending uh, that's going to be coming from those investment banks that may be getting a return on it elsewhere uh, across their business. So very dedicated fixed income relative value only types of strategies i do think have high barriers to entry they have to have you know relatively prominent history or have you know some type of some type of return stream to offer end user banks or leverage providers that that they can justify that balance sheet provision 
because that is a scarce resource and it is something that commands some type of return in exchange for for that provision, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that's in repo cost or or futures cost or otherwise. Mm -hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Eric. Thank you very much, Alex. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.